Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 284 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. If you joined us last week, we discussed heart health updates with everything from how the heart works to myocarditis to improving endothelial function and so much more. This week, we're going to be covering how to actually assess your cardiovascular health using our in-depth cardiometabolic panel. So we'll be covering who should consider this panel, how it differs from just a standard cholesterol panel you might get at your annual physical, and we'll be walking through a sample panel providing insights and interventions for some of the common concerns. Yes. So this will be a really thorough deep dive episode where we're going to be examining specific biomarkers that will help you to really understand your actual cardiovascular disease risk. So we're going to be digging into vascular inflammatory markers. We're going to be looking at markers of oxidative stress in the body. So actual LDL oxidation, which is a higher risk factor as we talked about last episode. You know, it's about the inflammation and the rigidity of the vessels and then the injury to that vessel that creates the necessity for the plaque formation. And that plaque only comes when LDL molecules are oxidized. So we actually look at the oxidation factor. We look at LDL particle size and so many different details that will really tell you your true cardiovascular risk. And you know, what's unfortunate is a lot of these biomarkers are not included in a standard panel that your general practitioner or even your cardiologist will run on you because there aren't known pharmacotherapies that can influence some of these biomarkers. So as we'll talk about like lipoprotein particle A um, and its clotting factor marker, yes, you may be put on a blood thinning medication, but that's not going to influence LP little a. Um, and so they just don't see value in running that panel mm. all too often. And when we look at the up-to-date literature, we know that you can bring in things like proteolytic enzymes and high-dose vitamin C that can actually have an influence on that biomarker as well as preventing the platelet aggregation or the stickiness factor in your cells, uh, driving more clot formation and cardiovascular risk. So I think today is going to be really informative. Um, I will note that we will be linking the cardiometabolic panel in the show notes mm-hmm. and for all you that are listening along, if you feel like this is a good investment for yourself, for a family member, a spouse, I think that this would be a really great way as an annual assessment to really know your true cardiovascular risk. Uh, you could listen to this episode, then order your lab over at Allie Miller RD under labs. It's called the Cardiometabolic Panel. We'll link it in the show notes. And for listening to today's episode and being a Naturally Nourished podcast listener, we are going to be offering a $60 discount with the code, what was that code, Becky? Cardio 60. Okay, cool. So you can use the code cardio 60. You'll still get a customized email review of your results with strategic interventions. You'll learn about these through today's episode, but when you purchase through our website, you will get that individual response with suggested supplements, strategy for lifestyle and diet, and tons of value added in there. So that panel is $399, but you'll have that $60 savings code. So that really would be a great investment. Yes. 
All right, before we jump into that, and I'll even link the actual sample panel that we're going through so that you guys can um, see the the document even printed off when you go through today's lab. So that's all yeah. over at naturallynourishedrd.com slash podcast. Um, but before we get into all that and, and discussing the various markers, let's just have a quick update on our Beat the Bloat program, which is coming up in April. Yes. So in just a couple weeks, we will be offering our first ever Beat the Bloat program. This is going to be three live classes, April 6th, April 27th, and May 18th. These are going to be over an hour in length, probably about an hour and 15 minutes or so. And we will be covering how to do the six-week protocol of the Beat the Bloat cleanse. So we'll meet with you and then recommend that you launch that following Monday. We'll check in halfway through your cleanse to ensure, are you now tolerating probiotics and are you seeing improvements in the dysbiosis and yeast overgrowth in the body and different assessment markers. We'll be giving you food as medicine support throughout the way and then at the end um, that third class really covering that bacteria rebuild protocol to have a robust microbiome that works for your body. So when we're talking about good candidates for the Beat the Bloat program these would be individuals that are dealing with bloating or distension, individuals that are dealing with stubborn skin conditions. So this could be anywhere from eczema to acne to rosacea and rashes or various forms of dermatitis. This is a good fit for individuals dealing with infertility. We've talked about the connection of the uterine tissue and how berberine can be a powerful tool and how when the vaginal um, and urogenital health is off in the microbiome, how that can throw off hormone as well as a healthy habitation essentially for implantation. Um, what would be other good candidates for this people with GI stress yeah so. yep any GI issues so chronic constipation I really find that this is a very valuable tool um, if we're having a regular bowel so from you know diarrhea and alternating constipation um, bloating distension you know you name it food intolerances especially to you know like the FODMAP uh, variety foods or onions, garlic, cruciferous veggies, if those are not working well for you, um, what else? I mean, I think that, yeah. again, just kind of pretty broad. So skin, gut, immune, and the whole world of autoimmune sure, condition, yeah, yeah. a good time to get in and plow the microbiome. And then we know that whole brain-gut connection in the world of mental health. So totally. we're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. anxiety, depression, or you had a COVID infection and you just want to make sure that your immune system is primed and back on track. I think that this would be a really great housekeeping, if you will. So again, it's a six-week protocol. The class ranges from April to May, and it's a way to plow your microbiome to strategically seed with good gut flora to ensure that your microbiome is optimized, and that keeps your whole body thriving. You will get the three live classes. You will get seven weeks of chat support on our Slack, so it's not through social media, but on a private page where you'll have direct kind of forum-like communication with Becky and I moder moderating. And then you will get the most updated version of the Beat the Bloat ebook, as well as discounts extended on the gut-specific labs, so our MRT test and our stool test. This program is only $65, so awesome value in that. We hope you all join us over at AllieMillerRD.com under Books and Programs. Grab your spot today for the Beat the Bloat program. All right, so as we're getting into today, I will make sure to link in the show notes some of the episodes that we already have on heart health, going all the way back to episode 40, pre-me, as a couple yes. episodes pre-me um, as a, a co-host, um, heart health and cholesterol, so a really good like foundational building block episode, um, episode 128 
keto cardiologist with guest Dr. Nadir Ali. That was a fantastic episode. 157, we discussed cholesterol as medicine and why you don't want your LDL to be too low. And I'm sure we'll get into that today as well. Um, And then the most recent was 283, last episode, heart health updates. And I would go back and listen to that just as kind of a foundation because we're really just going to dive into like the lab work. Uh, But as we're talking about things like endothelial function, you'll find way more in that episode 283 where it's, you know, described to a T. Yes. And Uh, another reason to subscribe to the Naturally Nourished podcast because then you don't miss a week of any of the goodness. Yes. All right. Let's get right into it. So, you know, we know that heart health is the leading cause of death um, for men, women, and people of most racial and ethnic groups in the United States. And this is this year's statistics from the CDC. Yes. So not COVID guys. Right. So a person dies every 36 seconds in the U.S. alone from cardiovascular disease. And each year that's looking like 65, 659,000 people. Uh, and that's one in every four deaths being attributed to heart disease. The most important thing we can do to prevent these deaths is have early detection and a reduction of the risk factors before the disease progress is imperative. Um, And so what we're looking to do, of course, with early detection and reduction of risk factors is understand what those risk factors are and how we can functionally approach them. Sure. Um, And this is really where this cardiometabolic panel comes in, right? Um, So it's a single blood draw and a very advanced test for both cardiovascular risk and includes um, some risk factors as well for metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. And unfortunately, those two often will go hand in hand. Yes, absolutely. And so when we're looking at metabolic abnormalities, we're seeing both cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome as being greatly lifestyle related. So this advanced laboratory assessment is going to give us objective data as a baseline. I always say, and I would say this to anyone listening, you know, when you're testing, where are you at with your current mm-hmm. lifestyle and diet? Because there will be modifiable variables. If you're at an active phase of weight loss, and we talked about this in the cholesterol as medicine episode, if you're in an active phase of weight loss, you may see flukes of elevation in your total LDL value because you are losing fat. And when you're losing fat, cholesterol is going to be increased during that time. Of course, the outcomes of the weight loss influence on your body and that being favorable for cardiovascular health. And then as things level out and you're in a weight maintenance mode, you're going to see those values shift a little bit. So I would caution if you're in an active phase of weight loss, you might want to be consistent for about two weeks prior to a lab draw. I definitely wouldn't do like a dynamic fast or anything Mm -hmm. remarkable as like a crash diet just prior to a draw because that could make a fluke of results. And then if you're looking to make lifestyle goals of like, I want to get back to the gym, I want to get back to exercising, you know, do you want to test now as a baseline? preceding this intervention that you're going to bring in or do you want to establish that habit and test three months into that change generally speaking we say about 12 8 to 12 weeks of a change to have an influence some of these biomarkers will have about a three-month influence factor overall and so you know it's just thinking of the data as as important as the circumstance in which you're assessing sure so are you assessing in an optimal thrive mode and you want to see where you're at or are you in a contemplation mode of change and you want to be motivated right, to see right like you need that the number shock and on. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. and so. and 
Either one is acceptable. We have clients who often will do this like going into, they're starting our our 12-week keto Keto. program Mm -hmm. and they do it before they've made any shift. And then they do it at the end of that 12 weeks to really see, um, and that's a full, you know, three months to really see that modification of their values. And more often than not, they are very pleased with the results. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we're looking at this panel, this advanced laboratory assessment is going to look at abnormalities in glucose. It's going to look at lipids or cholesterol as well as life protein metabolism. We're going to look at adipokines, which facilitate the influence of body fat metabolism and thermogenesis in the body. And then we're going to look at, you know, each factor and talk about clinical outcomes. Totally. And so we've talked in, you know, prior episodes about how 50% of people who have a heart attack have normal cholesterol levels. And I think that's the really, you know, key influencing factor of, you know, why to do a detailed panel if there is genetic predisposition or if there is concern there to make sure that everything else checks out, not just getting the gold star to get the gold star on your standard cholesterol panel, right? Yeah, so we're overlooking so many identifiable risk factors if we're only relying on cholesterol as a biomarker. And this is per the NIH, the National Institute of Health, you know. So when we're looking at an advanced panel, we're able to look at the biomarkers of inflammation, oxidative stress, and also that particle size, which is really going to give us a much more qualitative assessment and a more true risk factor versus overlooking 50% of those that are going to have incidents. Totally. Um, So maybe let's talk about just who would be a good fit for this panel. I mean, anyone can run it. Yes. Um, It's great to, I think, do at least once on yourself just for kind of an overall picture of health. Um, But especially those with either a family or personal history of of heart disease is kind of the first group that comes to mind. Yes, that would be the highest need, of course. And then anyone that has an elevated marker of inflammation and or elevated lipids or cholesterol levels, especially if being told that it's recommended to go on a statin or newly on a statin, you know, you can use this panel as leverage, if you will, to support your lifestyle and supplement interventions and not require statin drug intervention, um, which could be a really great way that a lot of my clients use this about semi-annually, you know, and that just kind of keeps us on target, watching and ensuring that we're using the best natural compounds to regulate the primary risk factors. And then most physicians are on board to see that that's being managed and then won't fight you or arm wrestle you to take that statin drug, which we know, again, the statin drugs block that HMG-CoA reductase pathway in the body. And that biochemical building pathway not only blocks cholesterol formation, but that also plays a role with testosterone, serotonin, vitamin D, CoQ10, and so much more. So we're always looking, instead of putting that Band-Aid on the volcano, to really work more upstream to get effective outcomes and have that report card, if you will, to show your physician that you are doing your due diligence and that you're not a risk factor and they can ease off on that constant strained (laughs) recommendation and Uh fight that happens. Yep. Um, And then individuals with um, any degree of, of, 
you know, known or suspected insulin resistance. So, yes. you know, pre-diabetes or you got an A1C that was kind of in that range um, without a diagnosis yet, um, or, you know, active diabetes, family history of, of diabetes or metabolic disease, I think would be important too. Absolutely. And uh, then anyone yeah. who is dealing with, when we're talking about metabolic syndrome, we're thinking about that diagnosis through a waist circumference. So we're looking at anyone who's overweight or obese, of course, as well as anyone who's been told that they have fatty liver disease, elevated liver liver enzymes, this would all be area because the liver is the primary producer of cholesterol. So if we're really trying to understand what's going on in that organ beyond a hepatic panel, you could also look at the cardiometabolic panel. Totally. All right. Um, so this panel includes a whole bunch of different markers and, you know, again, well beyond the standard panel, but it's just going to look at your total cholesterol, your HDL, your LDL and triglycerides. And they might throw in like a VLDL if you're, yeah. you're super lucky. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to dissect these in kind of groups. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm going to present Allie kind of the, the case study and, and tee up what's going on with this sample panel and this is just a sample provided through the lab that we use so it's not a real patient or anything Um, but we're going to kind of come up with interventions as we go through the various chunks Um, so starting off and and if you're following along over at naturallynourishedrd.com you can see this in like the first four values there and um, also on the uh, website allymillerrd.com if you're looking at purchasing the lab yeah, you'll see a right sample there report right yep. there as well yep. just yep. saying i think it's just not as easy to like click in and, and zoom as okay as the link i've got in the show notes but all good um so starting off we're looking at an individual with elevated total cholesterol so that's that's your first red flag of like the doctor would automatically be like here's your statin prescription um so total cholesterol of 251 triglycerides of 155 hdl is 52 and the ldl is at 168 um so let's start just with that total cholesterol and what does that mean so this would be like again what i would call a dumbed down lipid panel (laughs) or just a standard lipid panel looking at total cholesterol triglycerides, HDL, and LDL. And so we're really looking at the cholesterol score of that total cholesterol um, is going to be the HDL plus the LDL plus 20% of your triglyceride level. That's how that value comes about. Um, And so it is somewhat of a calculation versus a an actual fractionated value per se, the total cholesterol at 251 would fall as a risk factor through, you know, guidelines through the NIH and, you know, statin drugs used to be recommended only if the value was 230 or above uh, and we had two or more comorbidities. That's now dropped down to 200 and we've seen the same thing with LDL. It used to be 130 over LDL and now it's 100. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are seeing, of course, industry influenced uh, financial, of course, to sell more multi-billion dollar industry of the statin drug family here. Um, when we look at a high level of plasma cholesterol, um, this has for a long time been considered an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. But as we just noted through the NIH, 50% of people that have heart attacks and heart disease have a normal cholesterol level. Mm. So it doesn't sound like a high value um, assessment if we're talking about only capturing half of the incidence, if you will. Totally. And and I don't know about you, but a value of 250, that alone doesn't scare me at all. I really want to look at triglycerides as kind of the next mm-hmm. line item to see again, if I'm only looking at a, a standard panel, this can, you know, have some value looking at the triglycerides and then the HDL yes. or, or protective Most cholesterol. Most definitely. Um, so this individual is exhibiting elevated 
triglycerides at 155, which is pretty high. Like we like yes. to see them like 70, 80. 80. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always functional ranges. And so like you're saying, Becky, I don't necessarily have a functional desired range for total cholesterol, mm-hmm. but I do have a functional range for triglycerides to always be under 80. Yeah. So the, you know, standard reference range is to be less than 150. So you could be at 135 and not be flagged by your physician, sure. but we're still holding a disease risk factor. So triglycerides are the fats from the food that we eat that are carried into the blood. And, you know, most of the fats that we eat are in a triglyceride form. When we have extra calories or alcohol or excess glucose from carbohydrate consumption, this is going to metabolize into triglycerides and be stored in our fat cells throughout our body. And we see high levels of triglycerides associated with risk for cardiovascular disease based on their negative role in the regulation of the metabolism and size of the high and low low density lipoprotein. So that the impact on the HDL and LDL essentially. So the high levels of the triglycerides are often going to be associated with low levels of HDL. And we know that HDL is very cardioprotective. So we'll see um, a lot less anti-atherogenic, smaller HDL if we are going to have higher levels of triglycerides. So you don't get that cardioprotective broom for the vessel often as a consideration. And um, we also tend to see that the high levels of triglycerides are associated with an increased level of the pro-atherogenic or pro-heart disease driving small dense LDL molecules. So again, triglycerides can give us at a cheaper, you know, direct impact, a a risk association of some of these more qualitative values. And if we're looking at lowering triglycerides, the first intervention I'm going to see is how is the carbohydrate intake Mm -hmm. in this individual? So are they using any simple sugars? We would often see someone with fatty liver also having elevated triglycerides. So we're thinking of things like high fructose corn syrup and for sure watching and avoiding all forms of that. We're removing any form of processed refined sugar intake. We are screening for hyperglycemia or hyperinsulinemia, so high blood sugar levels paired with excessive insulin output. We are going to start to look into the world of diabetes, which this panel, again, already does for us. We're often going to see excessive abdominal fat, low adiponectin, so less of that thermogenic gray fat. Um, We'll often see high leptin, like a leptin resistance. So they're overeating. They're not getting that satiety factor. And then we'll see an imbalanced ratio of that leptin to adiponectin, again, showing that dysmetabolic syndrome. Okay. And then, you know, excessive alcohol intake and and other factors, you know, um, I always look at liver health with triglycerides. And that's one of my first interventions too. If they're like, I started eating low carb, but I'm still like drinking a bunch of alcohol or they haven't quite like cleaned up, you know, the the dietary sources yet, or or they're eating like a dirty keto. Um, Liver health is often like a first um, kind of line of defense with elevated Absolutely. So I think of as interventions, the first one I go to before even thinking of detox is omega-3s. Sure. I think the omega-3s have been shown to have the most effective impact. And that's why in the world of hypertriglyceridemia um, or elevated triglycerides, they'll bring in Loveza, which is a pharmaceutical version of a fish oil where there's an ethyl ester um, shift in the bond of the omega-3 fatty acids. Now, we would much prefer using a whole food sustainable fish oil like our EPA DHA extra and maybe by the time of this episode coming out we'll have our liquid version of that which is going to provide more flexible dosage Um, but we talked last episode about how our omega-3s are tested for both potency and purity so we are testing for 
dioxin. Um, we're testing for plastics. We're testing for any of those pollutants in the marine space, so any of those ocean contaminants. And then we're ensuring that we are getting the potency of getting that two grams a day of that EPA DHA. And we do know that these types of the omega-3 fatty acids are very successful in bringing down those elevated triglycerides. And so that would be essential because also those omega-3 fatty acids will have a double dip in managing the CRP, which we'll talk about when mm-hmm. we're talking about inflammation. And they're also going to support that elasticity of the vessels. So you get that actual structural benefit of the vessel function with the omega-3s. And then second from that, so we'd say two to three times a week of wild-caught fish, getting the EPA DHA extra. And then if triglycerides are of concern still, and especially if we have that liver tendency, I would recommend doing our 10-day detox using the Reset, Restore, Renew detox packs, and then keeping in a detox pack daily until you can get those levels harnessed Mm -hmm. and regulated. Yep. Um, And then moving on to uh, the next value, the HDL was low. So this was at 52, and this is still flagged as low even in the the conventional labs, where do you like to see HDL, like 70, 80 plus? Yeah, I mean, the better. At, at, right, the higher the better, yeah. right, at least 60. Yeah. And so, you know, we think of really trying to get that up. And when we think of HDL, again, as I mentioned, this is actually going to provide that cardioprotective factor in the body. And so we're getting that anti-atherogenic influence from HDL. And um, one point improvement of HDL can actually prevent your percent risk factor of heart disease by 6%. So if you take that 52 and you move that up to, you know, um, 62, you're going to see appreciably a 60% from those 10 point increase, a 60% reduction from your prior risk factor. So there is really powerful influence that we can get from getting that HDL up. And that's why that's called your good cholesterol, generally speaking. Um, The high density lipoprotein can actually pick up excess cholesterol in your blood and brings it back to the liver where it's then broken down and ideally removed or excreted from the body because it's in an excess state. And so it really does work like a broom of our vessels. And we do know that a low HDL is considered to be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease because it does increase that risk for that atherosclerotic plaque formation. So when we're looking at HDL, um, we're really trying to understand its relationship and then also how we can increase that value. So when we're looking at the relationship, we're considering that LDL to HDL ratio So the general rule of thumb is to have that LDL to HDL ratio below five, but that's again in an unhealthy population. When we're looking at more of a functional goal, we'd really want that at three or below, 3.5 to one or so, Um, but really a three to one is an ideal range. So we're looking at that relationship again of that LDL to HDL. We're looking at the pro-disease driving cardiomarker versus that protective. And so this individual would have a much higher ratio because their LDL is relative high and then their HDL is relative low. Yes. So just like we've talked about dominance with hormone Mm -hmm. in the body, you know, that would be a more remarkable risk factor. And when you are assessing trends and changes, it is nice to keep this ratio in check 
to continue to use as an assessment marker. So ways to bring up the HDL. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, so we're looking at exercise as a huge influencing factor and especially that when we're doing um, resistance training, we can see body fat loss as a great way to drive up the HDL as well as even routine aerobic type exercise. We see quitting smoking can be favorable on upping the HDL as well as blood sugar regulation. So that same thing that's going to help to harness the triglycerides there. We have seen favorable influence of omega-3s also on increasing HDL as well as reduction or removal of trans fats in the diet, which I really hope that most of our listeners aren't doing. But you know, remember you can get trans fats when a improper cooking oil is fried. So if you're at all even eating fried Brussels sprouts, you could be consuming trans fats. Absolutely. If they're using mazola, vegetable oil, corn oil, most restaurants aren't going to be using pasture-raised lard, (laughs) unfortunately, or tallow in their fryers. And so you are probably getting trans fat exposure anytime you're doing a fried food. And that's going to interfere with optimal HDL. We can actually see this one as opposed to the triglycerides, HDL can go up with moderate alcohol consumption. So this is where red wine would be a beneficial consumption factor. If triglycerides and liver enzymes look good, then this would be a candidate I would say, hey, you're doing really well to have that glass or two of red wine every night for that HDL support. And then we do think of nicotinic acid or niacin uh, B3 as a big factor here. So I'd always start first with our B complex and making the assumption that the individual is at least doing our multi-defense as well, which would have all of those methylated Bs. We'll talk more about methylated Bs and what they do in vessels, but we do know that an ample dosage of niacin, whereas if you layer in our B-complex on top of the multi-defense with or without iron, depending on your need there, that you should be at a pretty nice dosage of that B3 to help to support that increase of your HDL. Now, for some individuals, we still need to layer in niacin. And I will note that this is that nutrient that you may have heard of that can do the flush. Mm-hmm. Um, and the niacin flush can cause uncomfortable um, hot rashing or hives or um, quite a remarkable like kind of hot flash essentially in the body that can occur. And so you would want to look for like a time release or an extended time of the niacin and you'd want to do an added uh, niacin supplement in the evening and also not on an evening where alcohol was consumed or that could cause more exacerbated flashing going on in the body. Yep. I think also for HDL, you know, I'd recommend looking at the quality of fat that beyond just trans fat, um, is this individual consuming enough healthy fat? And that's totally, you know, keto, I think would come into play, but you know, we know that those beneficial fats that we talk about, especially in a Mediterranean keto approach can help to increase that HDL. So I would suspect this person is likely still on like a sad diet and maybe even a low fat diet, at least low quality fat diet looking at these values. And this is where we can see nuts and seeds and nut butters being great, as well as avocado as another one to add in to up that HDL. And then we also know that coconut oil could have a favorable influence here. Um, But if we're running high LDL, that's the only one where I'd say watch the coconut oil because some people will make more of that low-density lipoprotein, but you would still be great with the nuts, seeds, olive oil, and avocado. Yep. Okay, and then there 
LDL was 168, which again, that's another big like, woo, woo, alarm bell for statin drug is coming down the pipeline. Yes. So, you know, the LDL has been considered also an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, but recent research and more of the up-to-date true functional assessment really indicates that the subspecies of LDL pose a better indication of risk factor. And so we're looking at more of the LDL particles and the LDL particle metabolites even further, especially looking at those oxidized LDLs. And these are what are actually made into the foam cells that drive plaque formation. So an individual could have an elevated LDL, an elevated low density lipoprotein, but still have a low LDL oxidative factor. And they would be a candidate that would not need an intervention of lowering because they're at that very low risk. Their LDL molecules are intact and they're not prone towards that oxidative stress or plaque formation. Yes. And, and we've talked about two, you know, different timestamps of life be it, you know, menopause or yes. something's off with a thyroid or actively fighting an infection. Those could be cases where LDL is spiking, but maybe we're not seeing those other oxidative factors. Absolutely. And so I think that the biggest thing that we look at, you know, we do see an overlap in the literature as far as the B3 niacin. Mm -hmm. We see an overlap in the omega-3 fatty acids. Um, we see an overlap in the quality of the fat consumed. Um, but we're also seeing, of course, the big importance here of getting enough phytocompounds and antioxidants to prevent that oxidative stress. And we have seen that these small, dense LDL particles tend to be associated also with dysregulated blood sugar. So we tend to see that these small, dense particles go up when individuals are consuming flour based foods or again more of that standard American diet higher carb consumption and as we transition to more of a fat driven diet especially with quality fat forms and getting ample protein and keeping those carbohydrates moderate to very low that we tend to see more of the large buoyant LDL molecules and this is what tends to be more cardioprotective less prone towards oxidative stress so if you're looking at that total LDL of the one what was it 168 168 you know, if we're looking at a total particle count of, you know, a, a, a much smaller total amount because there were more large buoyant, if you think of like marbles in a jar, right? The more marbles, the more LDL particles that are there, the more prone opportunities for plaque formation, the more um, buoyant and large these molecules are and the less total particle count, the less prone towards injury and impact. Got it. Okay. Um, and we'll get into the the various factors and, and kind of um, breaking down that LDL a little bit further in a moment. So off the bat, that's just the standard cholesterol panel. And you can see, you know, we have quite a few interventions up our sleeves already. Um, you know, but to be fair, this individual, just based on the, the high triglycerides and low HDL, I'm suspecting when we look at the other markers, we're going to see some more stuff because they're likely already at, at you know, a moderate cardiovascular risk. Um, yes. But if we stop here, we could miss some of the big puzzle pieces as to why. Um, and, and I think we've hit a lot of overlap of our interventions of, you know, a Mediterranean keto approach, definitely bringing in that, you know, EPA, DHA extra 
that's pretty much across the board of anyone concerned about cardiovascular right. health. I mean, I'd like that for everyone to take a, a yes. quality omega-3. But anyone who runs this panel, that's always my recommendation. Even if things look pretty groovy, I'm like, well, you could add, you know, right. one thing. Um, and then, you know, to, we talked about liver support and uh, blood sugar management. And then I think the one other factor, if we just stop there, um, maybe bringing in some supplemental fiber as well. Yeah. So we could bring in our phytofiber, which has those nine whole food based ingredients. And it's a combination of both soluble and insoluble fiber. We have seen fiber to have a protective influence on increasing that HDL. Fiber also creates more of that mechanical brooming. And so it is going to sequester or basically absorb circulating lipids and pull those out so that you're not seeing as much in the bloodstream. So the fiber will be basically a binder and eliminator. And I think that, you know, two teaspoons of phytofiber is a great way to get down that total cholesterol as well as get down that total LDL. So for those that are looking for, you know, showing that report card to their physician and they really want an, an additional assurance the phytofiber is a really great sure. add-in. And so doing two teaspoons into uh, Greek yogurt with chia seeds and berries or adding two teaspoons just to almond butter and making a little like nut butter ball out of that and then drinking water after, that works well. And then the, the other thing I will note is when we're looking at interventions for cholesterol and LDL risk factors, I do avoid the red yeast rice mm-hmm. and that whole line of supplementation strategy. And that's because this monoculture colon K, which is the active compound that is in the red yeast rice, is a synthetic, well, what a statin drug is, is a synthetic form of monocolon K. And so if we're saying that statin drugs by their mechanism of action create imbalance, the same natural compound that blocks that same HMG coa reductase pathway, monocolon K from red yeast rice, would in theory have still that same influencing factor of driving those deficiencies. So I'm not a fan of the red yeast rice products out there. And if there's a cholesterol supplement on the market, you definitely want to screen and avoid for that ingredient. What I would add in if I was getting more aggressive beyond the phytofiber and the individual says, I need to see these values come down for my life insurance policy or Uh or whatever, you name it. Um, The two things that I'd consider layering on, one would be glucomannan. Mm -hmm. So there is some glucomannan in our phytofiber, but this would be a little bit more aggressive. And, you know, you could use a higher dose of glucomannan up to a couple grams. Um, So, you know, two to three grams of glucomannan to further sequester and remove that circulating lipid and that can really impact the quote unquote report card again if you're looking for getting a number under a certain goal and then you know the other thing that I would consider is plant sterol stanols and plant sterol stanols have also been shown at two grams per day of a plant sterol stanol blend to successfully lower the LDL up the HDL and lower the total cholesterol Um, again I kind of think of these more though as like the downstream influencing factors of getting that good report card if you are at multiple risk factors and we still want to see those values in range, those would be the next line of defense. And one that I like is called Forresterol. I'll link that in the show notes and have that on my Amazon store um, if that's something that you feel would be a good tool for you. Yes, I think that's a really good point. Kind of last line of, of defense. And again, if it's like your doctor, not that they can make you ever do anything, but if they're like, we've got three months to turn this around, those yeah. would be the things to bring in. And I think it's really important to note too, 
never let somebody prescribe a statin based on a single cholesterol panel because we know that there can be variants of like 30, yes. 40, 50 points, especially yes. in those triglycerides and LDL that are going to be influenced like by what you ate the night before. Mm-hmm. If you forgot to fast for the full 12 hours, if you had, you know, a high carb binge a couple days prior, right. um, if you drank, you know, too much alcohol or if you did more of an extended fast actually. Um, and so I would always ask for that rerun or, or rerun with us, you know, through the, the cardiometabolic panel before you're allowing any medical intervention and ideally not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I, just to add to that again, you know, this is why when I'm working with a client, I'll say, okay, if you're doing the 10 day detox, go ahead and do the 10 day detox and then, you know, draw your cardiometabolic panel a week or two after, because I don't want to just look at a gold star of right, not what's right. actual life so doing the 10-day detox can give you that beautiful scorecard at day 12 13 14 right post detox at 10 days but is that a baseline that you want to assess or do you want to let yourself recalibrate and then assess at that time again depends on what you're using the data for and if you're using it for life insurance you might want to do it right after a 10-day detox (laughs) that's a good point yes All right. um, So before we even get into some of the more advanced biomarkers, let's just have a quick word for our sponsor for this episode, KetoCon. Yes. So we are super excited to be live happening, connecting with all of you at KetoCon Austin this July. So a couple months out and I'm super stoked to share that I will be keynote speaking again. This will be my fourth year keynoting at KetoCon and this is an annual event that's held at the Palmer Event Center in Austin, Texas. It's the largest event in the U.S. that focuses solely on the science and stories of living a ketogenic diet and lifestyle. There will be 50 speakers, many friends and peers of mine who are going to be including medical professionals, researchers, bloggers, technology developers, fitness experts, and then just everyday people who have had amazing successful outcomes to share to keep you motivated and working towards improving your health there's going to be over 250 vendors and these are all thoroughly vetted food product manufacturers technology providers wearable devices supplements and so much more and we really love this event because of the community i mean ketocon played such a role in my um I don't know, just like bringing my brand to life, I guess. Yeah, like I, momentum and yeah. trajectory of the brand. Yeah. Yeah. And and just some of the friends that we've interviewed on the podcast and um, we see repeat community time and time again. So I'm already excited to see friends like Danny and Mora and Robert Sykes and all of the, the buddies um, that we've bonded with. And what's really cool about KetoCon is I think it has really low ego. Um, a lot of the uh, different conferences that you go to, the speakers are kind of like on their own level and you don't get to really engage with them in the audience. Well, KetoCon's so different because each speaker when they come off stage literally like stands around and answers questions. There are VIP tickets and if you purchase a VIP ticket, you get to like actually have dinner with Becky and I and all the other speakers and I think I'll be doing something fun and special for that event. Um, And so there's just so much connection, networking, um, new friendships and also inspiration on products and tools to take your ketogenic diet to the next level. So you can learn more at keto.org. That's www.keto.org. And um, you can email help at ketocon.org for more information. And tickets are going to be at ketocon.org. 
Um, so make sure that you're going over to ketocon.org to get your tickets. Uh, you can use the code NOURISHED10, that's all lowercase, NOURISHED10, and you'll save 10% off of your three-day general admission pass. And we'd love to see y'all there. Again, this is going to be July 8th through the 10th. And the Discount Nourish 10 is live now and will stay live through July 1st if tickets last that long. It's going to be so exciting. We'll have to plan like a meetup or something to be determined around that time for you listeners that attend. Yes. All right. Let's go for some of the more advanced markers. So we already spent like a good 40 minutes dissecting (laughs) just the standard panel. Um, So VLDL for this individual or very low density lipoprotein was elevated and this was at 31. Okay, so VLDL, you already said, is very low density protein, and your liver makes VLDL and releases it into the bloodstream, as it does with all of your lipids. Uh, The VLDL particles mainly carry triglycerides, and um, they're going to be similar to the LDL, but LDL mainly carries cholesterol to the tissues instead of the triglycerides. And so again, the triglycerides have their own independent risk factor. So elevated levels of VLDL have been associated with atherosclerotic plaque formation and the atherosclerotic process. Uh, The VLDLs are, again, triglyceride-rich particles that should be secreted by the liver. And um, when we're looking at lipolysis of the core triglycerides, the free fatty acids are going to be derived, um, delivered, excuse me, to the peripheral tissues. And so as lipolysis means basically the, the lysing or the breaking of fat cells. And in this process, we see that the dense lipoproteins become enriched with cholesterol esters and ultimately become cholesterol enriched low density lipoproteins. So the VLDLs have triglycerides within their structure and then they likely convert into an LDL. And accumulation of VLDL will indicate abnormal metabolism of lipids and lipoproteins and that increased cardiometabolic risk. So this is something that would be expected when I'm looking at an elevated triglyceride level to see elevated VLDL go along with that, right? Because they're carrying that elevated triglycerides. Um, So a lot of the same interventions here, I think, would apply that we already discussed for triglycerides. Right. So big thing, again, watching the carbs and sugar in the diet, movement and exercise, getting that blood sugar metabolism regulated, those omega-3 fatty acids. And then we do look at normalizing the levels of adiponectin to leptin. Um, This will help to decrease the fatty acid biosynthesis and increase fatty oxidation in the liver. Um, so we're looking at actually getting that adiponectin up, which omega-3s support, um, but also this could be done through intermittent fasting as a great way. And even like um, this is where your temperature-controlled therapies like your thermogenesis from uh, doing cold plunging um, or you know even doing hydrotherapy in the shower, this would be a great way to bring up that adiponectin, which would help with the impact. Um, And the next step would be non-HDL cholesterol. So this is basically just, you know, what isn't HDL. So the non-protective stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of the the total value of your cholesterol minus your HDL. Okay. So this particular value is kind of like a little bit of a repeat of the information we already know. And and we already know this individual is at, you know, moderate risk. Let's get into... And should we just address right at that point the 
um, ApoB, ApoA1 ratio because sure. yeah. I often kind of roll over this as well with patients. And this is another one that might be in a more standardized lipid panel, but now we're starting to get more investigative. But a high ratio of ApoB to ApoA1 is a strong risk factor for cardiovascular disease and acute myocardial infraction. The ApoB levels provide a direct indication of the particle number of all of the atherogenic non-HDL lipoproteins. Mm -hmm. You're getting, again, a little bit of an overlap of that non-HDL value. So the ApoB is looking at the VLDL, the IDL, the LPA, and the LDL. And so we'll, we'll define LPA in a little bit. So there's a little bit more qualitative markers in here. And then the ApoA1 is going to give us that direct indication of the anti-atherogenic HDL particles. So kind of similar to where we discussed that LDL to HDL ratio, the ApoB is just giving us some more qualitative factors, including that LP little a in there, and then taking that up against the HDL itself. And it's called the ApoB, ApoA1 ratio value. Yeah. Not to say these things aren't important, but a lot of the interventions we've talked about are, are really going to cover them. Um, And then another um, value in here that I think is pretty unique um, to this panel, and and you probably are not going to get, you know, your GP to run, um, would be the oxidized LDL levels. Yes. This is big. Yeah. So no, this is unique again, because independent of your total LDL and even independent of your LDL particle size, the level of oxidation of the LDL is going to be one of the strongest predictors of risk for coronary artery disease. Um, This is going to be looking at the impact of oxidative stress, which drives inflammatory process. So we know that high levels of oxidized LDL will increase the risk also for developing metabolic syndrome. Within a decade, there could be a cardiac incident if oxidized LDL levels are elevated. So when we're looking at the LDLs, we do know that if there are more small dense LDLs, there's often going to be a trend of also elevated oxidized LDLs. And again, this is considered a highest risk because these are the ones that would penetrate the arterial wall and drive that plaque formation. So when we look at these values, we're really trying to address the oxidative stress with antioxidants in the body. So when we're talking about the impact of cardiovascular incident, we're looking at the ApoB protein constituent, which includes, you know, again, all of those atherogenic markers that these once oxidized will penetrate the arterial wall. And this modified ApoB protein then is then recognized as foreign, taken up in an unregulated manner by scavenger receptors on macrophages, so white blood cell responses, where last episode we talked about the infection connection here. And this process with the macrophage uptake of of scavenging of these free radicals um, is what really is going to instigate the arterial inflammatory response. This is what's going to drive further recruitment of more monocytes. We're getting more white, white blood cell response and the initiation of the foam cells. I keep saying foam cells, which are a combination of this white blood cell and oxidized LDL ApoB protein buildup. Okay. And so really here, this is where we want to hone in on not just getting those numbers down, 
but really bringing in the high dose antioxidants. Yes. So getting in, you know, your five cups of produce a day would be a big goal here. So your two to three cups of leafy greens, getting in some good cruciferous, which would also support that LDL and liver area. So triglycerides and LDL could be impacted by the, the cruciferous veg. So cauliflower, Brussels, cabbage, you name it. Um, and we'd be looking at berries as another good intervention to get different color, those anthocyanins, which support the vessel, of course, and adding those antioxidants and then our herb seasoning spices and roots. And then in the supplement world, this is where we're really looking at our antioxidants in the line. So our most potent would be um, the cellular antiox, which has that N-acetylcysteine and S-acetylated glutathione. What's really unique and cool about bringing in cellular antiox is that this has also been shown to reduce calcification mm-hmm. and calcification or the calcium buildup in our arteries is another independent risk factor of cardiovascular incidence. So you get that dual impact with a cellular antiox, which would be a really key formula. And if we had a high oxidized LDL, I would use the cellular antiox at four capsules daily. Yep. Super turmeric would be another one that I'd bring in, which is going to have that double dip of anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. And that would be at about three capsules daily as a minimum. And then the Bio-C Plus would be another great add in here. So we're going to get that acerola cherry in there. We're going to get those bioflavonoids like hesperidin and um, also looking at the quercetin, which is going to help, of course, with seasonal inflammation, white blood cell regulation, and the antioxidant boost. Okay. Um, And the next step was the small, dense LDL. So we've kind of covered a little bit on um, particle size, but just to note, this individual has um, a small, dense LDL of 57, which is considered elevated. Yes. And as I mentioned, you know, the small, dense LDLs are independently associated with increased risk for type 2 diabetes because they are associated with more of a refined carbohydrate diet. So we will typically see an increase of triglycerides, an elevated A1C, or at least elevated insulin level, and a low HDL in individuals that are going to have this elevated small, dense LDL. And so when we're looking at some of these biomarkers here um, in the oxidized LDL, we'd really like that value to be less than 45. And this sample patient had a 92. So when I'm looking at their cardiometabolic panel, the greatest risk factor would be in that oxidized LDL. And then the small dense LDL cholesterol would give me more concern of their otherwise standard lipid panel. Their small dense LDL was at 57 and we like that under 35. So this is where then in this individual we'd say, okay, beyond that making that keto lifestyle change of the Mediterranean keto and the omega-3 and the B complex, let's maybe say for you because you have such a high oxidized LDL that we're going to bring in that plant sterile stanol blend Mm -hmm. to kind of harness that LDL and bring that down until we can get some of those other risk factors managed. Yep. I think that's a really good choice just because we're we're seeing kind of the risk pack on as we go through these Mm -hmm. markers, right? Yes. Okay. Um, next up, let's talk about LP little a. So this individual for lipoprotein A um, was within normal range. Okay, so they were at an LPA of 16. And we're really looking to see that LP little a being less than 30. And LPA stands for lipoprotein particle A. And so when we're looking at this risk factor, this is an independent factor of stickiness in the blood, if you will. Um, And so this is the LPA is an LDL particle with an apolipoprotein A attached to it. 
it is involved in the formation of plaque and it competes with plasminogen in the body. So it's a strong independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It accumulates atherosclerotic plaque and its plasma concentration is predictive of heart disease. It is prone towards blood clot formation and stickiness factor in the Mm -hmm. blood. And so this is where earlier in the episode I noted, you know, this is where we'd bring in proteolytic enzymes. And so this is where our inflammazyme would be a big key factor. And we talked about inflammazyme as also a powerful tool when we've seen in last episode the increase of clots looking more fibrolytic, especially those that have used the experimental injection and have higher circulating spike protein. Um, So the inflammazyme would be a great way to prevent blood clot formation if you have a family history of stroke, if you've had a a recent vaccine and we're seeing that association of risk factor of clotting, and then also LP little a would be another factor to bring in that inflammazyme. And we're really looking at about six a day here, Mm -hmm. two at rise, two midday, two at bed, or you could do three at rise, three at bed. Inflammazyme is always taken without food because it's an enzyme not to support digestive enzymes, but an enzyme to break down the tissue buildup. Yes, so like little Pac-Men that get in there and <laughs> break down those those clotting risk factors. Um, and yes. the niacin has also been shown um, to help to lower levels of LP little a. So oftentimes I will, you know, lo- layer on the um, B complex. And then if we're just not getting anywhere and we know there's a strong genetic component, I will do some of the controlled release niacin with yeah. my clients that have a chronically elevated LP little a. Yes. And then the BioC plus can be a big sure, one yeah, here yeah. as well. And I would note that this is one that could be influenced, especially for women that are menstruating. Um, you know, if they are on their menstrual cycle, there can be a little bit increase of clotting influence. So I would say, you know, not to draw this while you're on your active menstrual cycle. Yep. Or if you've recently had the vaccine, actually, this could be. Give yourself at least six yep. weeks, you yep. know, maybe 12. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go into maybe some other markers. We've covered the ratios. Let's do this one, the PLAC. So again, this is pretty unique to this panel. I haven't really seen it in other places before. Yes. So PLAC uh, is a marker that we will see elevated as a influence of plaque instability and cardiovascular events. So this is lipoprotein phospholipase A2 activity. And we see that when PLAC is elevated, that this is indicative of a very significant disease activity risk within coronary arteries and an increased risk for rupture of advanced plaque. So it's assessing some level of plaque buildup in the body, if you will. Um, We do know that PLAC is bound primarily to circulating LDL and it's enriched in the atherosclerotic plaque. So our lipid-laden macrophages within the artery are what what are the factories, if you will, or the compounds that release the PLAC. So once these white blood cell-based macrophages actually consume these oxidized LDLs, those macrophages release this PLAC, and that's that indicator of that actual plaque influence. We see that inflammation tends to ensue with an elevated PLAC, and then calcified atherosclerotic plaque becomes to become unstabilized. Okay, so like the cellular antiox would be a good intervention here to help with that calcification piece of the puzzle. And I think, you know, for this individual, I'd throw the inflammasome in there, not for their LP little a, but for this reason. And they're just, as we go through this, kind of starting to look higher and higher. 
risk. Yeah, and we're also starting to look at with PLAC infection, you know, mm-hmm. so this is where we really want to check in on the world of the microbiome, yeah. gum health, and this is where we're really going to be working with the targeted strength probiotic and the rebuild spectrum in that individual as well. Yeah, we're doing a probiotic challenge. It's a good um, kind of starting point too. Or get them in our Beat the Bloat program yeah, and, and have them reset. We haven't even talked yeah. about berberine. Right. So there could be lots of benefit from doing a whole microbiome reset in, in an individual that has that high PLAC for sure. Okay. Um, and then homocysteine we did see elevated. So coming back to that B vitamin conversation, let's talk homocysteine. Yes. So homocysteine values we like at eight or below. Uh, this individual had a level of 11.2. And we know that when homocysteine is elevated, that it can act as an arterial abrasive and actually physically damage our arteries. We think that this is like a rigidity factor of our arteries. And we know that this can impact, of course, the endothelial lining of the arteries, which normally would respond to enzymatic or hormonal cues to dilate or contract. When we start to see issues with dysfunctional vessels from that endothelial lining due to the high homocysteine values, we know that the vascular health itself can be dysfunctional and seriously compromised. So this can stem from renal disease since homocysteine is cleared through the kidneys. So we can think of like, again, detox influence because liver and kidneys play a primary role there. We know that homocysteine itself, of course, is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease because it's looking at the damage to the arteries themselves. We do know that when we're talking about hyperhomocysteinemia, we want to always screen for methylation issues in the individual. So we're able to biochemically convert homocysteine into methionine when we have ample methyl function, methylation reactions, and methyl donors in our body, as well as not being overtoxed with tap overtaxed with toxins, if you will. So when we're looking at the pathways that require regulation of homocysteine, we're looking at that transsulfuration pathway, and this is what we do hit with our 10-day detox as well. Um, And we do know that for individuals that are MTHFR or have that genetic impact on methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme, that those individuals have issues with methylation. And often instead of converting that homocysteine to methionine, the homocysteine values build up. Um, This can also be concerning because in that MTHFR population, we know that then they're also in that, um, we think it was always SAM to SA, um, that S-adenosylmethionine to S-adenosylhomocysteine conversion, that that can also play a role with mood, um, can play a role with miscarriage, migraines, and so much more. Okay, so this individual might be MTHFR or they might just be lacking in some of those B vitamins, and and namely we're looking at B6, B12, and folate. So again, just supplementing with the B complex I think would be a pretty safe intervention here and and have a myriad of other benefits. Absolutely. And then, you know, also for homocysteine lowering, I would bring in the relax and regulate because we do know that that magnesium glycinate, that the glycine can also aid in regulating homocysteine values. Yes. And and we also know homocysteine when elevated is a risk factor for cognitive decline and and Alzheimer's. So again, if that's a concern, really important to, to get ahead of that as well. Yes. Um, We saw an elevated CRP or high sensitive uh, CRP at 2.0. 
Yeah, so we like to see this at 0.8 or less, really the lower the better, because HSCRP or high sensitivity C-reactive protein is a well-established indicator of arterial inflammation, and it's associated with a substantial risk of coronary artery disease and cardiovascular incidence. It's an independent risk factor for future heart attack, as well as stroke and death for asymptomatic people. So when we're looking at an elevated CRP, we can see that this tends to track with metabolic syndrome. We'll tend to see also a high leptin to low adiponectin ratio. Um, we do know that as we regulate and reduce CRP levels, that this can have a very favorable impact on decreasing the progression of atherosclerosis and supporting better clinical outcomes. So this is a really important area to tackle. Um, we do know in a more of a conventional space that the CRP is also gonna be monitored for inflammatory conditions. So whether someone's dealing with severe pain or someone is dealing with rheumatoid arthritis um, or uh, Crohn's disease, they'll often run in the world of autoimmune inflammatory conditions, a SED rate and a CRP value. The interventions for elevated CRP in the mainstream medical field is often going to be a statin drug, um, aspirin, and low-dose methotrexate, which is really a medication that's used more with rheumatoid arthritis, um, but does play a role in blocking some of that inflammatory process. Also can see dynamic reduction in folate levels and then an increase in homocysteine if we bring in that medication. So definitely not one that we'd want to start with off the bat. Um, to get this at that 0.8 or below range, we would bring in inflamazyme at that six a day, super turmeric at three plus per day, the EPA DHA extra at about three to four capsules per day. And then if we're still seeing stubborn inflammatory response, the MRT test would be highly considered because we'd really want to know what is this individual consuming regularly as a whole food ingredient or an additive chemical that's driving that immune inflammatory response. Okay, and then if this individual is, is consuming a standard American diet, obviously the first order of business would be getting them on a real food keto approach, cleaning up some of those inflammatory ingredients. Right. Because uh, that CRP could well go down just doing that without the MRT. But if they're having other inflammatory symptoms, might as well check it out. Yes. Okay, let's look at some of the more metabolic syndrome um, risk factors on this report. So this individual, I was surprised actually to see their fasting insulin was at a six. And this is really where we need more of the clinical picture because this could be an advanced diabetic who's actually seeing like decrease of, of insulin output from their pancreatic cells. Or maybe this is somebody who like just started keto and is starting to see some things come in line, but not everything else. So I have more questions for this sample patient. Or maybe they're doing a dirty keto. It could be, yeah. Because really, yeah, yeah. most of the biomarkers for diabetes look they pretty look good. They look pretty good. Yeah. So the fasting insulin was six, and I generally like this eight or less. Um, you know, this is an important marker when we're looking at the stress to the pancreas. We know that insulin is made by the beta cells in the pancreas responding to glucose elevations. So insulin plays a role with transporting glucose into the cells of our body. And if it's elevated, we're going to see that hyperinsulinemia or that insulin resistance. So we'd really like to see, this would be a, an early marker of prediabetes. And then as you said, Becky, prolonged diabetes could drive depletion in insulin levels, but generally we're not going to be seeing that in these types of a, a panel. And if you did, you would see an elevated fasting glucose right. and a glycomark that's out of range. So 
This is just that one biomarker and often, again, insulin levels will go up and then over time start to decrease in a non-managed diabetic. Yes. So this individual's fasting glucose was 97.5, so maybe like on the higher end of of normal range, but still below 100. Mm-hmm. Um, and then glycomark in this panel kind of replaces um, the A1C that we normally talk about. Yeah. So the glycomark indicates poor control of blood glucose spikes, specifically frequent hyperglycemic events over the past two weeks. So these could be overlooked from an A1C, which is a three-month average. We're looking at these postprandial hyperglycemic associated risk factors in the glycomark because, again, cardiovascular disease and reduction of hyperglycemic events really will appear to influence the macro and microvascular complications in these patients. So we're really looking at seeing a regulated glycomark. A low value is going to be associated often with renal damage. And um, this is going to give us more of an indication of the dynamics versus the overall percent average that you would see in an A1C. So someone could have an A1C at a 5.3 or a 5.4 in range, but have an elevated glycomark. And this individual might be having naked carbs, and we need to really get in there and manage their dynamics. Because any blood sugar spike, even if regulated by ample insulin, can be a stress factor to our vascular system. Totally. And we talked more about that in our episode on why your A1C might be elevated. So that would be a good one to listen to if you are noting some of these values for yourself out of range. And so glycomark could be elevated also from stress Mm -hmm. alone. Yep. Mm -hmm. Especially like because it's, you know, a condensed two-week period, thinking about what's been going on the two weeks leading up. and, And if there are some abnormalities you know, maybe a CGM would be a good place yes. to start. Um, if we are looking for active weight loss as well, that's a great tool. Yes. And then when we're looking at other metabolic markers, we have the leptin at 38, which is the high end of normal. Again, remember this is the satiety hormone. So I've noted that, you know, leptin resistance can often be seen with elevated blood sugar levels. We didn't see the blood sugar levels, but maybe this individual is overweight. Um, And so that increased body fat can drive some of that leptin resistance and that can create overeating, cravings, weight gain. We can get that leptin value down through intermittent fasting as well as a ketogenic diet. But intermittent fasting would really be the big impact because you're not ringing the bell of food frequency Mm -hmm. and you're allowing your own body's fat metabolism to boost that leptin versus continue to perpetuate that leptin resistance. Okay, and then their adiponectin, as she said, was in range, but their leptin to adiponectin ratio was off. Yes, so adiponectin is a hormone that is secreted by our adipose tissue or our fat tissue in the body, and it's involved in glucose regulation and fatty acid breakdown. So it has similar impact on the appetite as leptin does. It also suppresses the appetite. And the adiponectin, we want to work up to correct that ratio. So we'd be looking at, again, the healthy fats, omega-3 fatty acids. We have seen raspberries to have some unique properties on adiponectin. And then I mentioned earlier, um, doing some of that cryotherapy or cold temperature therapy can also have a favorable influence on the adiponectin. Okay, and then last but not least, and we won't spend much time here um, because these were all normal, but this test does include a couple of markers of kidney function, and this is because we know that renal or or kidney damage is a common consequence of metabolic syndrome and hyperglycemia. 
Yeah, so we're looking at cysteine C, which is a protein that's produced by the cells in the body. And when kidneys are working well, they keep the level of cysteine C in the blood perfect. Um, so if the values start to get too high, that could be a marker of kidney function or kidney dysfunction or kidneys not functioning well. The creatinine, um, creatinine is going to be a test of how your kidneys are performing and filtering waste from the blood. So creatinine is a chemical compound that's left over from energy producing processes in our muscles. Now we can see creatinine go up um, if, for instance, an individual did a really uh, rhabdomyolysis type exercise or like an intensive spin or, or something that would be really muscle depleting. But generally speaking, healthy kidneys will filter out the creatinine from the blood. Or so if they're really dehydrated too. Yeah, 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 that could be as a concentrate factor, yeah. exactly. And same with the um, estimated GFR, your glomular filtration rate. This is the level of kidney function and determines, you know, a stage of kidney disease could be off if severely dehydrated. So definitely the big things as far as, you know, considerations of getting this panel drawn, don't draw it during your menstrual cycle if you're a woman that's menstruating. Um, also, don't draw it when dehydrated. So be sure that you drink a solid 8 to 16, really 12 to 16 fluid ounces of water minimum prior. You would want to take this panel fasted, so you're not going to be eating for 12 hours, but not an extended fast. So just ideally about 12, max 16 hours of no eating before you get this blood panel drawn. Be well hydrated. Um, and then the other thing to consider is no intensive exercise for about two to three days prior to this lab draw. Now, if you're doing normal exercise, keep up with your normal regimen, but don't like max out on your legs or your arms or right. do something that's a stair step up because we could see a marker of inflammation from that muscle tear as well as the creatinine. And so there could be some biomarkers that look more off. And I've even seen CRP levels go up from like a really deep tissue massage. Sure. Yeah, so yeah. if you're bruising from it, you're get, you're having yeah. tissues destroyed yeah. and that drives some inflammatory process. So just be mindful of the activity leading into and keep things more kind of standard quo and when we say fasted that's like a naked fast not a fat fast please yes. don't do that before don't this panel butter don't have butter in your oil. coffee yeah yes. yes good call okay so we've covered so so much in this episode um, I think listeners can already tell that this is a super thorough panel um, so let's just summarize some of our kind of top interventions here and then we'll let y'all run. Yeah, I mean, I think the the big benefit is understanding your own Achilles heel in the world of cardiometabolic health because you may be surprised by what you see and that can have such an influence on how you hone in your lifestyle and diet. But across the board, we're going to recommend a Mediterranean keto approach. So, you could use our 12-week keto meal plan if you want some food as medicine inspiration, including, you know, 7 to 8 new recipes per week with a grocery list and a matrix of literally just following and eating the deliciousness that we provide for you in a plan. You could also purchase our 12-week food as medicine ketosis program to learn deeper the nitty-gritty all about ketosis in a functional medicine approach. Um, if your blood sugar is still not being managed through your keto approach, this is where we'd consider layering in a CGM to really understand what's going on with your blood sugar metabolism. We would absolutely recommend everyone for cardiometabolic health to exercise. So really looking for a minimum of those 8,000 steps daily, minimum, as well as about two to three times a week of focused muscle training, resistance training in your exercise world. We'd be looking at across the board an anti-inflammatory and high antioxidant support. So in the world of anti-inflammatory, we're looking at those two to three times a week of wild caught fish, 
bringing in the EPA DHA extra, bringing in our super turmeric and inflammazyme, as well as the cellular antiox, and then potentially considering the MRT panel if that inflammation is not going down. For antioxidants, we talked about the power of produce, herbs, seasoning, spices, and teas, which is one I didn't mention, but incorporating more teas into your diet would be a great way to boost up that ORAC or antioxidant capacity. And then in that world, supplementation strategy would be cell antiox and bio C+. And then we would focus on clearing the imbalance through liver support and fiber. So liver support, doing like an apple cider vinegar flush in the morning, especially if you have blood sugar issues. We know that vinegar can manage blood sugar quite successfully. Um, We know doing the 10-day detox can be a really great way to support the liver to clear excessive circulating lipids. And then using that detox pack at one pack a day as a continued maintenance. And then the phytofiber, chia seed, flax seed, um, getting in those leafy greens to aid in binding and removing that excess lipid that's being recirculated through the blood and redistributed. And then we mentioned a lot on the B complex as well as the multi-defense. Um, any of our multivitamins in our line are going to have those methylated B vitamins, which would help that methyl donor function of homocysteine lowering. And then if you still need a boost, you might bring in some of that extended release niacin. All right. So the code for listeners, again, is going to be CARDIO60 for $60 off of this panel. You can order the panel over at AllieMillerRD.com under labs. Again, that will come with an email review from either Allie or myself, um, along with you know targeted, targeted information based on your results. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.